welcome to this episode of Students Talk Security. My name is Fabi Shipley, and I'm a junior studying political science and, and a student fellow with the International Security Center. Today, I'm joined by Ambassador David Robinson, who is a diplomat in residence with the Keough School of Global Affairs. Prior to returning to his alma mater to join the Keough School, Ambassador Robinson was the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations and Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization in the U.S. State Department. He is a career member of the U.S. Foreign Service and has worked extensively in conflict zones and unstable environments, specializing in refugee and migration issues. From 2013 to 2014, Ambassador Robinson served as Assistant Chief of Mission at the United States Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. During his long career in the Foreign Service, Ambassador Robinson has been responsible for the implementation of the Dayton Peace Agreement in Bosnia and Herzegovina, held senior positions in the Bureau of Population, Refugee, and Migrations, and the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. Ambassador Robinson has an impressive list um, of positions that goes on and on, but for the sake of time, I'll end it here. Um, we're very excited to have Ambassador Robinson um, joining us for the, this episode um, to discuss the current state of the U.S. war in Afghanistan and the prospects of peace. So without further ado, Ambassador, could you just describe what was going on when you were in Afghanistan back in 2013, 2014? Sure. Well, well first, thank you very much for, for having me here. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, <clears throat> during the time I was in Afghanistan uh, as the Assistant Chief of Mission, uh, the country was going to uh, have its first uh, democratic free and fair elections, the, the first really clear transfer of power peacefully uh, from one party to another. And uh, it was uh, an exciting time, to say the very least. But at the same token, obviously, it was a, a time of uh, enormous uh, conflict. Uh, so the violence was uh, a constant presence in everything we did. The thing I, I'd like to bring to the attention of the listeners today is the difference, really, between the way a diplomat looks at things and the way an intelligence officer or a military officer looks at things. And I think that came out very clearly uh, when we got our instructions from the White House uh, about how important this election was. <clears throat> uh, we being the embassy and, and uh, ISAF, uh, the, the International Security Forces, got a sort of a cryptic message that said, look, these elections are too important to fail. That was it. That's all they said. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, a lot of instruction. Well, we knew that, obviously. <laughs> we had been there, and it was important to us. So uh, we began working to make sure those elections didn't fail. Mm -hmm. What was interesting to me, and I think uh, ultimately what um, I think we all learned from this, was that the military perspective was very different than the diplomatic perspective. Mm -hmm. When the military began thinking about how to make sure these elections worked, they thought about, obviously, security. They, they said, look, there, we have to make sure that the, the polling places are secure, that polling officials uh, are safe, that uh, voters can get to these places safely and, and, and not be you know, hurt. Uh, we have to make sure that the ballot boxes are picked up and they're counted properly, all that kind of good stuff. What they thought <clears throat> was, gee whiz, a lot of logistics, mm -hmm. a lot of helicopters, a lot of uh, you know uh, trucks and, and troops, <laughs> right? When the diplomats sat there and thought about this in the embassy, <clears throat> we said, well, you know, that may not be correct. Our impression of what will make the elections fail is if the Afghan people themselves don't accept the results of the election. Right. 
what's the best way to ensure that they don't accept the results of the election? That's if a lot of U.S. troops are carrying ballot boxes around, if you see a lot of helicopters, and it looks like the Americans are running the election, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we understood in the embassy that a certain amount of violence was going to happen on election day, but we could probably survive that uh, as long as it was clear to the Afghan voter that their vote counted, that it was not being manipulated by the United States, that we were actually only interested in a free and fair election. Fortunately, um, <clears throat> at the time, the ISAF commander was uh, uh, Joe Dunford, who is now the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is a brilliant person. And we had a conversation, and, and things worked out well. So mm -hmm. we, we managed to put our, our, our joint efforts together, mm -hmm. and the elections worked in 2014. Um, there were, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, about 600 attacks on election day. There's a lot of violence. Um, but the Afghan people said, okay, we get this. Mm -hmm. And so Ashraf Ghani became the president, right. and Abdullah Abdullah became uh, his sort of number two. Uh, and we're facing another election coming up, up relatively quickly. But I think it's, it's interesting to understand that um, when we focus only on um, physical security, we sometimes miss the point right. about security. We sometimes miss the point. And I think that almost happened in Afghanistan in 2014. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would you have to say then about the recent elections that just took place? Uh, there were parliamentary elections that had been scheduled for about two years and kept being delayed. And finally, right. I think in mid-October, um, they fin finally took place. But they were, were accompanied by a significant amount of violence. It seems like relatively less, though, compared to the presidential elections. Um, but are there still the same doubts about, um, you know, the legitimacy that, of, that the Afghan people see in these elections and the influence of, um, you know, the American powers that be on, you know, uh, who ends up being elected? Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm hoping that the questions about legitimacy are, are a bit less severe today. Um, I think it's quite clear from our performance in 2014 that, that we really were working for the Afghan people, not for some other uh, cause <clears throat> or from some specific U.S. interest. Uh, that said, what I'm struck by is the fact that the elections happened. Mm -hmm. um, you really have to be there to, in a place like Afghanistan, but I've also served in the Central African Republic and other places that are quite difficult, mm -hmm. <clears throat> to, to see the commitment that people have. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. Um, and we just went through our elections last night. Right. And it's a relatively peaceful, easy process. You go to a public school and you cast your vote and you go have some coffee. Um, that's not the case in places like this. And yet people come out and they vote. Mm -hmm. It matters deeply to them. Uh, and I think that really becomes the basis of our commitment and the reason that we remain in places like Afghanistan, yeah. because we are trying to reinforce uh, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the commitment and, and the ability of people to do what, what right. they do under very difficult circumstances. Right. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned our commitment to, to stay in Afghanistan. I think earlier in September and October, Afghanistan really hit the news cycle because mm -hmm. we had, had marked the 17th anniversary right. of entering into the war. Um, and I think that's brought up a lot of questions among people about, um, you know, there's a continued toll on um, the lives of U.S. service members, a high cost. I think there's something like $45 billion we spend a year. Mm -hmm. um, and people argue that Afghanistan really isn't a vital interest to the United States. So, so why is it important that we're still there? Yeah. 
Well, <clears throat> you correctly point out the, the toll on U.S. service members. There's also a toll on diplomats and others mm -hmm. uh, who have served there yeah. under very difficult circumstances. I, I think the, the lesson that I learned, at least, from a 17-year commitment to Afghanistan is, is the point of reliability and commitment. Um, we, the United States really does have a major role to play in the world that we cannot avoid, mm -hmm. whether we want to or not. Isolationism is not uh, an option for the United States. We are the nation that other nations think about when they wake up in the morning. Yeah. Um, and consequently, we have to play an active role. So whether or not we have pursued the correct course of action for all 17 years in Afghanistan mm -hmm. or not, I don't know. Um, but being there remains important to us. Uh, <clears throat> I would say that our Russian colleagues in Afghanistan feel the same way. I mean, they, they went through their experience there mm -hmm. and left famously. Um, but we, we do work together often mm -hmm. uh, there because it's important to remain engaged. You can't yeah. walk away from this. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it does, in fact, matter. Yeah. You know, I've read you know, for 17 years we've been there making promises to these people that, you know, in their vulnerable situations that we wouldn't leave until there's a lasting peace. And so, you know, it's sort of we have to stick to our word, our word in essence. We do. The lasting peace, though, you know, frankly, mm -hmm. <clears throat> is their responsibility. Afghanistan yeah. is a country that um, has uh, often been divided, mm -hmm. uh, as we know. It's a very proud country. Um, it's a country in which I think there has to be some kind of negotiated settlement. I don't think there's a military solution. I don't think there's a simple security mm -hmm. solution. I think there's a political solution, and the Taliban uh, plays an important role mm -hmm. uh, in that. And I think that in terms of engaging the Taliban, that means we also have to engage Afghanistan and other countries in the right. region. So this is a, this is a, a, a multinational issue yeah. that we're facing. And so in the past several years of the, of the war, there has been this effort to initiate peace talks. And I think that some people feel like there is more promise. Um, President Trump had appointed a special advisor to Afghanistan to oversee this process. Um, and, you know, there's been meetings in Qatar between U.S. officials and um, in the Taliban political office. Um, so maybe given these impending peace talks, can you um, just briefly describe um, who are the major players at stake here and what are their, you know, their interests that they're coming to the table with? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Afghan people are the major players, right. and that really is, is what matters. Um, you know, it's really interesting to me that I, I spent a lot of time in my role in Afghanistan. I was the outside ambassador, mm -hmm. meaning that every day I, I hopped on a helicopter and flew around the country to different yeah. places and to different villages. Um, and, you know, frankly, I, I don't think that the Afghan people are that much different than any of us. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Um, they would like some stability. They would like some certainty in their lives. Um, and so when I hear reports that the majority of Afghans today support the Taliban or there's, there's some kind of mm -hmm. movement in that regard, I, I don't think it's true. Uh, I think what they support is certainty. They, they, they support some kind of, uh, as I said uh, before, some kind of... Uh, continuity in their lives, stability. And so if, if they fear that the government will not provide services that are required, um, they will look to the person that will. Yeah. And frankly, uh, and I probably couldn't say this when I was a diplomat, <laughs> but, but the Taliban was better at giving justice mm -hmm. than the government was. Now, right. it was a horrible justice. I'm not supporting it, so I want right. to make that very clear. Mm -hmm. But it was clear and it wasn't corrupt. 
And so people actually said, well, at least I will get an answer to my question, whether it's land or something else. I'll get an answer if I go to the Taliban guy. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and the Taliban may be horrible in the way it dispenses justice, mm -hmm. and it is, but it's a clear-cut answer, and yeah. I don't have to pay for it. Right. Um, that really becomes the central problem. So if you're a person in Afghanistan in some village in Herat or some other area, um, and, and you're looking at, at the country, you, 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 just, you, you just want some kind of security. You just want to mm -hmm. know that, okay, I can trust the guy that says, I'll do this. Right. They haven't had that through their governments. Mm -hmm. um, and they did have that to a certain extent, I don't want to overstate it, but to right. a certain extent to the Taliban, which I think begins to answer the question of why mm -hmm. the Taliban is so persistently there. Right. Yeah, so it seems like in these discussions that have occurred that you know, it's clear that the Taliban is going to play a, a role in, in the, whatever post-war Afghanistan looks like. Um, and, um, you know, I know the U.S. traditionally favors negotiating with, with traditional states, right? So how, uh, you know, as a diplomat, is it different to engage with these non-state actors? Well, it's tough to engage because there is no sort of accountability. Right. Um, you know, there isn't a structure, a legal structure or something else that, that says that if this person gives me his or her word, um, I can rely on that mm -hmm. um, because there isn't a legal system or other things behind them. So it can be quite, quite difficult. They often are unbound by the same kinds of considerations that uh, the governments feel. Governments, in the first place, are responsible for the well-being of people. Mm -hmm. A group like the Taliban is responsible, it feels, for overthrowing that government. Right. <laughs> so that's a very different approach mm -hmm. uh, to having to speak to someone and, and to... Uh, you know, to hope for uh, uh, mm -hmm. a compromise solution. Right. Yeah, and it's often been said that this, the, whatever the peace process looks like, it has to be, and you had mentioned earlier, it has to be Afghan-led and Afghan-owned is the, is the term that people commonly use. So what does that actually look like, and how does the U.S., you know, take a step back um, and make sure that, that it really these peace talks are seen as legitimate, you know, from the view of the, the Afghan people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not sure taking a step back is, is, is the right way to, right. to put <laughs> okay. it, and I'll tell you that. A, a lot of my time was spent uh, speaking to former or active warlords in Afghanistan, trying to mm. convince them not to destroy the elections that were coming up in 2014. Afghan, Afghanistan has not been uh, a, a country that is well noted uh, for, <laughs> for its peaceful uh, political processes. Mm -hmm. It has is, is often been a contentious place. Uh, so we have to, I think, accept that uh, to a great extent. I'm not sure what it looks like at the end of the day. I think the United States' interest in Afghanistan is uh, quite complicated. Uh, first, you know, the country itself um, is not a major trading partner or anything else with right. us. So in those terms, it doesn't matter a lot. But look at its geographic location with India mm. and Pakistan and China and Iran. Right. Um, these are important issues for yeah. the United States. So Ge we, Geostrategically, yeah. Precisely. So we have to get that right. By the same token, um, we can't manufacture uh, a result mm. that looks like, you know, Burlington, Vermont. It's not going to happen. It just <laughs> isn't. It's going to be a contentious country. It's mm -hmm. going to be a country that looks... Uh, like a bit of a, I guess I could say, shambles <laughs> to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it's important for us to remain engaged um, and, and to remain uh, as, as regional partners uh, mm -hmm. in that part of the world. And Afghanistan is a key uh, element of that. Right. And I think when the original intent of the war, right, was 
more focused on stamping out international terrorism, right? And it's became, become clear that the, the Taliban are much more resilient than we thought they would be. Um, and so, you know, over time, the war has evolved into more of, a, a, yes, a state-building mission. Um, and so what do you think even after, you know, you said there's not going to be a military solution. Um, maybe after a political solution is reached and there's um, some sort of ceasefire or agreement, um, you know, what is the, what might the continuing um, state building mission of the U.S. look like in Afghanistan? Yeah, well, first and foremost, <clears throat> uh, the Taliban has never been a threat to the United States. Yeah. Uh, the, the, in my view, mm -hmm. the, the Taliban simply wants the United States out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, you know, they are a, a local and regional actor. They're, they're not ISIS, they're not Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Um, they perhaps, you know, did, did horrible things in aid of those organizations, but they don't want to uh, in any way threaten the United States. So this is not a war about U.S. security mm -hmm. specifically uh, in, in that regard. So the question becomes, um, you know, why are, why are we still there and, and, and why are we there in a military fashion rather than a nation-building fashion? Um, and I don't think we've answered that question. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at our efforts, our USAID and other efforts to help the people of Afghanistan, I'm not convinced it's coherent at this point. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've figured that out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's quite clear that the Afghan people by and large, um, support the United States. I mean, if you look at some of the statistics, the number of girls who have gone to school now has right. skyrocketed. Healthcare has skyrocketed mm -hmm. uh, since the United States has been engaged. People see that. Yeah. That's a good thing. Uh, that's something we should continue to, to be proud of and, and to engage with. Um, but I'm not sure that we have, uh, you know, frankly figured out what our end game is. Right. I don't think it's there yet. So I mm -hmm. can't give you a, a, right. a cohesive answer on that. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have an end game, do you think that it's even productive to be in these talks with Taliban officials? And, and you know, is this part of the process of finding out what our end game is? I, I do. I think, you know, as a diplomat, I think it's always important to keep talking mm -hmm. um, and to stay engaged. I, I, I think when we, when we decide not to speak with each other, um, we're in great difficulty. Right. Um, so even if we don't have a precise um, position we want to reinforce, <laughs> I think it's important to sit down across the table from somebody and say, hey, uh, let's have a discussion about this right. thing. Let's see where we can, we, where we can wind up. Mm -hmm. I also think it's important, again, for the United States to recognize its relative position in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. It's the people of Afghanistan have to have the say mm -hmm. in this. And, and how do we correctly interpret that? That's yeah. a tough question. Mm -hmm. Especially since... in. And the, these, they, the peace talks have largely been bilateral, and the Taliban doesn't want to include the, um, the Afghani government in that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it becomes really difficult. Well, that's right. And that, I think, you know, quite frankly, that's part of what the U.S. diplomacy has to be about, which mm -hmm. is making sure it's a three-party at least right. talk. And it has to be broader than three parties. Right. Um, but nevertheless, you have to make sure that the Taliban is speaking to mm -hmm. um, civil society uh, on the one hand, but yeah. also the government. Right. Um, that's not necessarily happening yet, mm -hmm. uh, and we'll keep working at it. Yeah. And one thing that popped up in the news re recently that caught my attention um, was the fact that um, there were several um, members of the Taliban who were released years ago in a prisoner exchange, um, but I guess recently they were appointed to the political envoy 
um, in in Doha, okay. Qatar, to be a part of these these peace talks. Right. Um, so, you know, how does what is the position of the U.S. when people who were formerly held in in Guantanamo and probably subject to some pretty, you know, terrible practices on the part of the U.S. Um, you know, how does that change the dynamics of these talks? Um, <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, what I would suggest is that those are people that have a skin in the game. Yeah. Um, and, and they are dedicated to their, their cause. Whether I agree or disagree with their cause doesn't matter, but you have to respect the person you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people that really dedicated their lives to something. So yeah. you don't diminish them. You don't, you don't dismiss them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to have respect for people like that. Yeah. Um, you know, in many, there's some peace and conflict researchers who have noted that at the times of peace talks is actually when violence increases sure. because people are trying to um, increase, gain as much leverage as they can um, to increase their bargaining position. Is that a phenomenon that we see happening in, in Afghanistan? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Around elections and things like that, yeah, mm -hmm. you, you, you frequently see a, an uptick, a serious uptick in, uh, in violence, and it's... it's it's normal, I think. It's unfortunately normal, but that's, I think mm -hmm. that is a, a consistent factor uh, yeah. in what we do. And as I said before, that, you know, it gives credence to why the, you know, the military perspective is you have to stop that. The diplomatic perspective was in the 2014, 2014 mm -hmm. elections, well, how much can we sustain? How much yeah. can we put up with before it becomes, you know, problematic? Right. Uh, but it is always a consideration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the circles that, that you run in, are there, is there any talk of the, the upcoming presidential elections and what's to be expected with those? Um, can you provide any insight? Into I that? wish I could. I, I, I can't. I don't know um, precisely what's going to happen, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. with the elections. Um, based on my experience in 2014, uh, the elections will be terribly contentious. Right. Um, and... There remains in Afghanistan, at least from my perspective, uh, and I'm obviously open to disagreement here, mm -hmm. uh, but a very tribal nature. Uh, and, and so you will see uh, people that are more, uh, um, I, I think, if you want to put it this way, loyal to their tribe than they are mm -hmm. to their country. Yeah. Uh, and that will continue, I think, to inform the politics uh, of Afghanistan for a certain amount of time. Right. Now, in I think political discourse right now, Afghanistan is often compared to Vietnam. Um, that's a, a, and I don't know if you think that that's a, a correct comparison or not. Well, it's interesting because <clears throat> um, Holbrook, Richard Holbrook, who became the AFPAC uh, coordinator for a time before his unfortunate death, um, also served in Vietnam mm -hmm. as a young officer, a foreign service officer. And he was asked at, at one uh, function about that very question. Mm -hmm. And his answer was, as I recall it, I wish nobody had asked that question. Yeah. Um, because it is a legitimate question. When you get involved in something like this, it's hard to see the end game. It's hard to see how you get out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're struggling with that today. Yeah. So are there similarities to Vietnam? Yes. Now... Um, I think as years go by, um, you're going to see, you know, a different perspective on Vietnam and also on Afghanistan and other right. uh, conflicts that we've been in. So you, <clears throat> you have Lee Kuan Yew and others in, in Singapore who said, well, look, you know, the U.S. involvement in, 
in Vietnam actually set the stage for the rise of the uh, South Asian uh, success stories. Mm. Huh. It may have. Uh, I don't know the answer to that yeah. question. I, you know, so this is very much an open-ended yeah. discussion. The one thing I would say <clears throat> to anybody listening is that, look, it's important, though, that remem to remember that these kinds of conflicts aren't just theoretical. People are getting killed. Right. <clears throat> and Afghans are being killed, and Americans mm -hmm. are being killed, and others. Um, and I think it's important for us in the United States, particularly in light of this last election we just had, to, to, to be more sober-minded about this. Mm -hmm. That when you say we're going to commit troops to something, you're committing you know, somebody's right. son or daughter. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge commitment to make. Mm -hmm. And you really ought to think about that long and hard before you say yes to it. Right. Um, and I'm not sure that has always been the case. Uh, I think we have often sort of intellectualized the, the problems that we're trying to confront or tr solutions that we're trying to provide, um, and we leave out the human dimension. Right. Um, I would argue, sitting here at the University of Notre Dame, a values school not to do that. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I think... Um you know, particularly as this, you know, I think sev all 17 of my 20 years alive, the war in Afghanistan has been going on. And most days I don't even think about it, right? right. And most days you don't hear about it in the news. Um, you know, it's just not something that's really on the front of public consciousness, but it's been such a, a large part of, um, you know, American foreign policy and inter intervention abroad, and I think right. will have a really long-lasting legacy. But there is some young Marine lieutenant out there yeah, right. Don't forget that. Yeah. Um, so what, what lessons do you think we can take from, from past interventions? And I guess I know we don't know our end game yet, but... Um, I don't already. Yeah. Some, somebody <laughs> right. may. Maybe it's someone not, does. It's not me. Yeah. Um, you know, but how can we ensure that when, once we you know, may militarily pull out or, or whatever it might be, that there's not just more cycles of violence? Sure. You know, is, is lasting peace possible? And, and we don't... Yeah. Yeah, I, I obviously know the answer to that question. Yeah. That's, a, that's a tough one. Uh, the, the one thing I would say is, is I'll refer back to something I said earlier in this discussion, mm -hmm. which is, look, you have to stay engaged. You can't, you can't withdraw from the world. Mm -hmm. You've you got to stay in touch. You, you have to have an embassy. You have to have people who are working there. You have to, you have to know Afghans. You, you have to, right. to be part of their society and vice versa. Um, and that's the point of diplomacy. Yeah. Uh, it's when we lose that traction and when we lose that connection that I think we make uh, blunders. As I've said, I think, to, to you and, and to some others in class, look, the great sin of diplomacy is not disagreement. We can disagree all day long. Mm -hmm. That's fine. We did it with the Soviet Union, and we didn't make a mistake. We didn't blow up the world. Yeah. What we can't survive is misunderstanding. Mm. Um, we have to understand each other. And I think that's why we have to stay engaged. So I'm not sure what kind of outcome we're going to be looking at. But whatever it is, I think there have to be Americans there um, with our allies, mm -hmm. uh, and we have to be engaged. Right. Well, on that very profound note, um, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us here today. We've covered a lot of ground, and we've gained some, I think, really illuminating perspectives um, on an issue that tends to get lost in the news cycle. Um, but really, you know, like, like we've said, um, is one of the most important you know, challenges facing policymakers today, mm -hmm. militarily, politically, and 
really mostly from a humanitarian standpoint. Um, so thank you so much, Ambassador Robinson. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, you can find more Students Talk Security episodes on our SoundCloud page or at the Notre Dame International Security Center website. Thank you. Thanks, Fabio. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.